Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, and then uh, verses 8 through 16. That text is in the bulletin. It's also up uh, on the screens uh, behind me. Uh, this, If you're familiar with uh, Hebrews 11, you know it's about faith, right? And uh, uh, that's... Uh, uh, and we could spend a lot of time this morning talking about kind of a philosophical definition of faith and assent and belief and, and all, of, all of those sorts of things. But really what the text does is it shows us what faith is as it's lived out in the life of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as they're uh, listed here uh, in the text and how that manifested itself. And so that's the, the way we're going to uh, get at that uh, this morning. Uh, that's the way we're going to uh, try to un- understand it. And I think that's, I think that's helpful for us um, because um, for many of us today, I think if you, if I were to have put a, a, a waved a faithometer wand on you when you came in the door to see how you're believing and where you are, some of you would be okay. Some of you would be really struggling to believe even that there's a God, certainly that he loves you, uh, that he is for you. Uh, because of pain, suffering, disappointment, uh, all of those sorts of things, right? So, uh, so rather than spend a lot of time on that, what I want us to do rather is look at the way uh, God uh, uh, has given us these people and the way he worked in their lives uh, to encourage us and to show us, kind of give us a bigger vision of who he is and what it is that faith actually ends up being in our lives. So in light of that, let me pray, uh, and then we'll look at this text. Lord, we, we come to you and we confess, just as your disciples confessed to you one day, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. And um, so I, I pray that we would spend our time this morning as we interact with this great text about our father Abraham, Uh, that we would uh, be reminded of your faithfulness, of the fact that you have been at work uh, eternally and you will always be at work. I pray, too, for those of us who struggle today to believe uh, that you would help us, uh, that you'd be patient and kind and gentle, uh, and that you would encourage uh, our hearts. And so as we look to you now, as we open your word, I pray that you you would bless us. You'd be our helper. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 8 through 16. Uh, This is the word of God, and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Um, so uh, as we look at this this morning, a couple of things that jump out with uh, 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 out of the text. So people will come up with all sorts of definitions of what faith is. And and um, but I, I think I think a better way to think about it and the way the text uh, opens it up for us is not so much that it's a mental exercise, although there certainly are facts and things uh, that we believe. And it's not just a leap of blind faith into uh a, a world without any kind of evidence or anything like that. After all, we believe that Jesus was a real person and that he had flesh and blood and he walked this earth and that he died and that he rose again and that he ascended into heaven, that, that those things happened, right, and, and in, in time and in space. But the fact is, what, what faith really boils down to for, uh, and, and the text alludes to this, and Brian, you can put my notes up there, is that the nature of faith is seeing what is invisible, now that again, you might be thinking, did you take a pill before you wrote that? Because that that seems that seems kind of kind of kind of crazy that that could be. Let me let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, we we think that we uh, that the faith that we're talking about here that we can kind of be argued into it, or that if we just get enough evidence or whatever, that you could have that. Well, certainly evidence is important. Certainly arguments are important. Um, but something has to happen in us to take what is going on around us to open our eyes to what's what's really happening, what's behind what's uh, visible. For example, one day Jesus gets a message from his friends in Bethany, <clears throat> Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is dying. And Jesus purposes to delay going to them until he's dead, four days dead, before he gets there to visit his tomb, Right? And so when Jesus gets there, he says, take me out, you know, to the cemetery. They roll the stone away from the tomb and Jesus stands there and he calls Lazarus to come out of the grave and Lazarus comes out of the grave. Now, you and I hear that, we, we see that, and you think, if I had been there, I would have believed. And the scriptures tell us. That some did. But you know what else it tells us? That some people said, we got to kill that guy. In fact, poor Lazarus, there were people that wanted to kill him too. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, uh, so, so what's the difference? Right. I mean, there's something there's something going on there. Right. That that is different about the, the the nature of faith. That's why the the writer here begins by saying that we believe based on the word of God and and what what little we can see of creation that God made it. Right. Uh, no, there's some pretty old people in here today, but nobody was there when God made the world. <laughs> right. So you 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 weren't there. You weren't there to see that. 
right? And so the, so the fact of the matter is, while there are evidences and there are things like that, the fact of the matter is something has to happen to us to, to enable us to be able to see and to hear. People were all around Jesus. People were with him every day. And it took actually some the transformation that only the Holy Spirit could do in them to change them, to orient them to such a way to be able to see him as the son of God, to see him as the lamb of God, to see him as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right. And so so how does that then manifest itself uh, in our lives. Well, the writer here in Hebrews wants us, as he says uh, later, that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, that what God gives to his people, what he's given to us. And this is this is the blessing that we have to live in light of the promise today, because Abraham went before us, because Isaac went before us, because Jacob went before us and because Moses went before us and Samuel and David and, and all of those uh, Old Testament saints, the apostle Paul and John and Peter, they've all gone before us and all of them stand there on the road that we live on and say, look at that. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus, right? See him for who he is. And so we live on, on, on that side of it, right? So, so what the writer of Hebrews wants us to be able to see and understand here is to kind of unpack what faith would look like, what believing would look like, uh, by looking at these Old Testament patriarchs. And that's why he calls out Abram first to begin with, because Abraham is the father of the faithful, right? And we read that text earlier in the service from, from uh, Genesis chapter 15, where God has already called Abram. He's already gone to the, to the promised land. And, and Abram's saying, hey, God, you said that you were going to give me millions of, of, of descendants. I'm an old man. Sarah's an old woman. And that doesn't seem to be happening. So I'm going to take Eliezer, my, my, um, my servant, and I'm going to make him my heir. Now, was Abraham not believing God then? What's going on, right? Well, you have to see this in, in, a, in a wider context of, of, of what's happening. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, you read this. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot, that's his his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And so what we read here is, is that we don't we don't know what the background of Abram was. We know he's a descendant of Noah. He's a descendant of Seth uh, from uh, Adam and Eve. So we, you know, what was the content of what he believed? What, what did he know about God? Right? How did that work itself out? We don't really know. But what we know is that God came to him and said, Abram, get up from your country and go. Now, based on historical documents, based on archaeology, what we know about that is, is that lots of people who were in the eastern region of Mesopotamia were migrating to Palestine at this time. Lots. So Abram, Abram's in, you know, it's not just he's the only one. There are lots of them. But of all those people who are going, God picks him to be his man. Now, just imagine what, what that conversation was like at that dinner table that day. Hey, Sarah, we're going. Really? Where are we going? I don't know. 
<laughs> Over there. God said, we're going. Right? And they did. Um, and God said, by the way, Sarah, that we're going to have lots and lots of children. Abram died, right? And he and Sarah had one son, Isaac. But we read in the New Testament that the very fact that you and I are sitting here today, we are his children. We're his children because Abram did this. Abram was an immigrant. And the whole reason you're here today is because an immigrant moved from his country of origin to a place he didn't know. Now, I know that many of you were scrolling through your phones and reading the bulletin and not paying attention to what was happening here until you heard the word immigrant and immigration. <laughs> because, holy cow, where's that going to go? I, you know, that's, uh, that seems a little radioactive, right, for many people in our country today? Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, um, uh, if you, if you want to think about this a, a little more in depth, and I don't think I, I, I maybe, I'm, maybe I'm misreading the text, but I don't think so. I, I think uh, when you read that Abram lived as a stranger and a foreigner in the land, sounds like an immigrant to me, right? Um, and I, I can't tell you, I, I'm not going to make any implications or draw any conclusions about, from this about public policy because, frankly, that's, that's above my pay grade. But I know this, that what the Bible says is that the people of God welcome the immigrant because our father was an immigrant. Just do a word study this afternoon of sojourner in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Even when the people of God ultimately, you know, generations later, finally get to the promised land, God gives them very clear instructions about treating the sojourner in their midst just like one of them. And so so for, for whatever else may be true about this, one of the things that you have to see is this whole thing that God did of creating a covenant people, of, of drawing a man to himself, all begins with this man, and we don't really know what he knew about God, but in faith he heard the call of God and he got up where, from where he was living as a 75-year-old man and moved to a place where he lived in tents the rest of his life. Yeah. So, so whatever else may be true about us as individuals, as a church, as the people of God, that's where we come from. Those are your people. Abram, the immigrant. Okay. So, so one of the things that I, I think is, is, is pretty profound about that is, so you would think that when God would come to Abram and, and call on him to make this great sacrifice, to leave his country of origin, to go to another place, and that God promises him there that God will bless him. And, and Abram certainly grew rich there, no doubt about that. But that God would bless him and that through him, all of the nations of the world, Jew and Gentile, would be blessed. Because Abram was God's man. Abram heard the call of God. He believed God and he followed where God led him. Right now, one of the things to to think about that is that you would think that after someone sacrifices so much 
to believe and to obey the word of God, that the very next thing we would do is that something happened to Abram and Sarah and they had 15 kids. But they had one. And so, so what we, and, and, and you would think that because God said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you this vast land. It'll be yours. That by the time Abraham died, the promise would have worked itself out that not only would he have had a household, a house full of kids, but he'd have a vast land holding that, that all of the land, you could go up on the mountaintop and look across all of this land as far as you could see, and it was his. Abram does die a landowner in the promised land. We read near the end of Genesis, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abram went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abram rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. So Abraham dies. His son Isaac marries, has uh, two sons. Um, and then ultimately, Jacob, we know about him, scoundrel, thief, terrible person. But he was God's man. Now, he has a household of kids, house full of kids, too many wives. But uh, <laughs> uh, 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 he has, he has plenty, plenty of children, right? Uh, and as he is dying, he lays on his bed and he blesses his children. And we read at the end of Genesis, this is what their father, uh, uh, Jacob, said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Now, I think this is one of the things that's so profound about that. So when the text tells us here in Hebrews that, that these died, right? They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I think one of the things that we have to say about this is how ironic that the whole buildup in the book of Genesis is God's promise to his people, God's promise to bless his people, God's promise to give to them. And at the end of Genesis, the only land that is owned by the people of God is a cave at the end of a field where their dead bones are lying. I mean, if you're, if you're a, a novelist and you're writing a story, you can't get any more ironic and, and the way in which these things worked out. And yet those people, we, we read this and you could say, you know, they, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. You are not to be sad for Abraham. You are not to be sad for Sarah. You are not to be sad for Rebecca and for Isaac. You are not to be sad for Jacob. Because they died greeting the fulfillment of the promise of God. And you know what? We live on this side of that. We live on this side of the cross. 
We live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you, friends, you will die one day. If the Lord tarries, you will die, and you will die just like they did, greeting the promise from afar, in faith, looking forward to the place that God would give you. So even though we, we live here, we're, we're, we're on this side of it, and we, we might think, you know, that what faith means is, I, you know, I got it all already. No, you don't. You don't. I don't either. And, and you won't get it until God takes you home. That's, that's the way, that's the way this works, right? And so, uh, you know, there, there's a sense in which what you should have with that, and this is what the rest of the text really tells us, is that you should have a healthy dissatisfaction and discontentment about your home, about where you are, and about where you live right now. Next slide. Uh, so the patriarchs all died in faith, looking forward to the day when the promise of God would be fulfilled. And, and why is this important to note? Because every single human being is on a search for a place called home. Now, this you're going to think, Steve, you're getting kind of maudlin here. You're getting kind of kind of funny about this. But no, this this is it. The promise of God to Abraham and the promise of God through Jesus Christ to us is that we have a place, that we have a home, that not only is Jesus building a place for us, that he's going to prepare a place for us where he will lead us and that he will take us. Those things are true, no, no doubt about that. But it's even more than that because home is not so much a location geographically, although that's it. Home is more than that. Home is a place where you belong. Home is a place where the people there, the persons there, the God who is there knows you, loves you, makes a place for you where you're welcome. That's what a home is. Years ago, this is going to be really hard to believe. Years ago, I was a youth pastor. No one uses the word youth in reference to me anymore, Uh, sadly. And one of the things that I did regularly is I had meetings with parents, parents of of middle schoolers and uh, high schoolers. And middle schoolers and high schoolers, if you're still awake, I'm going to give you a window into what your parents talk about when you're not around. They struggle. They struggle a lot, uh, and they—it's—it's it's a hard. It's hard. You know, it's hard. Um, and sometimes the temptation overwhelms your parents when they get in a meeting like that, and and they're tempted to complain about you. Now you don't ever do that with your friends. You don't ever complain about your parents. So so it, it's all on them, right? It's all it's it's all it's all on on the parents. But but. They and, and they they trade notes about. Do you let your kid do this? So they they talk about those things. And so what I would try to say to them is, you know, it is really hard, and you're the authority, and you have to challenge them, and you have to hold them accountable. True, but think for a second what it's like to be a middle schooler or a high schooler, and think for a second what 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 the best thing you could do for your high schooler or your middle schooler is that you could provide a place within the four walls of where you live, a place where they belong. A place where they know they might challenge me here, they might tell me to knock it off, or they might something like that, but they love me, and they are for me, and I belong here. And I will always belong 
at this place. You see, that is that is the thing there that uh, that 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 God is is saying to us is He knows that He created that in us. That's why He situates our first parents, Adam and Eve, in a home in a garden. And since we have been cast out of that garden, God and us. The Lord and us have been on a quest to build for us, to find for us a place where we are at home, a place where we belong, a place where where we can enjoy the fellowship and the joy of knowing and being known. Right. And so these people here, uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they they demonstrated that for us, that they took God at his word. They believed him, that he was preparing something for them, that he made these promises to them and that he would give them what he promised. Right now, the interesting thing about this is, is it, it notes here that they lived in tents. Right. Uh, they lived as strangers and ex- exiles in the earth. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of him of the same promise. When you live in tents, by definition, that means you're not permanently anywhere, right? Now, you may be saying then, when, when, when we, we, it, that's why I've got up here, that you need to ask yourself the question, does your heart live in a tent? Or does your heart live right here? Right now, permanently settled and established. Right? Because one of the things that, that this text says to us, and one of the things that faithful living would say to us is, is that, that the faithful people of God, the people who, who God calls out for us as examples of faith, viewed their lives and lived their lives as pilgrims, as sojourners, as exiles, looking forward to a better home looking forward to a place where they would belong, right? And so what that tells us is, is that we hold these things here loosely. My dad, I used part of this text that when I preached my dad's funeral sermon, my dad's mother died when he was five years old. And uh, his father was gone a lot, absent a lot, uh, through most of my, uh, my father's childhood. Uh, and he was largely raised by his older sisters, and by older sisters, I mean 14 and 16-year-olds. They raised him, right? Um, and I, you know, he met my mom when, uh, when they were both nine, when her mother had just died that year. And I think one of the things, the dynamics and their relationship, one of the things that held them together, beyond the fact that they were, up until the day they died, they were incredibly attracted to each other, which is, uh, you know, what kid wants to see that in their parents? But they, they really were. They were so, so attracted to each other. But one of the things that I think that glued them together is they were both looking for a home. And they knew that about intuitively about each other, that they were longing for some place where people would love them and where they would belong. And they, to a degree, they supplied that to each other. And I can tell you that when my mom died, uh, uh, it wrecked my dad from the sense that what little sense of home and belonging he had was ripped away from him, and he longed to get to that place where he would be loved and he would belong, right? So the tendency that we have uh, is that we will take these things in our lives now, relationships, places, houses, homes, situations that we're in, and we will try to make those 
our home, our permanent home, and that we will latch onto them and that we will create an affection and a, and a bond to those things that they were never intended. So that what happens to us is that these things that are temporary and these things that are only pointers to us of the ultimate eternal home that we have, we get so attached to them that it is impossible, almost impossible for us to... Um, to let go of. Now you may be thinking, well, that was true of Abraham, that was true of Isaac, that was true of Jacob, but you know, Joshua takes the people into the land and they settle. They settle, they have a home. Yes, they do. But I want to tell you something about it. It's not the way you think. It's not. Because I'm going to show you the way they operated. And I don't know how in the world they did this. But nothing Nothing that people owned really was theirs. I know that sounds crazy. And I'm not, I, you know, don't, don't worry, I'm not about to go socialist or communist on you here. I'm, I'm just going to show you the way God trained his people to look forward to and to understand who their real home was. For example, let's say you have a home place or a piece of property that has been in your family for years and years and years and years, generations, literally, and you lose your job and you can't pay your bills. So you have to take that home, that property, and you have to sell it to pay your bills to keep from being, you know, bankrupt. You do that. Well, that's fine. But every 50 years... That land, that home, goes back to you and your family. Here it is in Leviticus. So the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. That's God speaking there. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. God is saying that he is a stranger, that he is a sojourner, and that in the sense that that stuff there, those things that we tend to think this is permanent, that belongs to us, we belong to that. No, no, no. It's his. And just to show you that it's his so that you won't be tempted to think this is yours in perpetuity. No. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. So 49 years is seven times seven, right? So seven Seven sevens after every 49 years on the 50th year, whatever was sold, whatever was transacted in that period of time goes back to the original family that got that land when they came into the promised land. What a nightmare. I've been thinking about this and I'm like, you know, you know how they do these things, whatever they are. I don't know what they really are. They call them title searches. You know, when you you have clear title to the to the land or to the house that when you buy it. How did that work? What happens if it got sold three times? I I don't, I don't, you know, and I don't, honestly, I don't know if they ever actually implemented this or not. But the point is this. God did that so that no one would think and no one would get so latched onto, this is it, this is my home, this is where I belong. Because the truth is, that's not it. Where you belong, where I belong, is the ultimate permanent city, the ultimate permanent permanent location that Jesus is making for us, right? So where does our sojourn end then? Uh, well, we hold these things loosely, right? We uh, 
we recognize that the things in this life that, that might replace our ultimate home must be held loosely. And that's why God in his goodness and his grace and his mercy makes these things temporary. Otherwise, we would grow content and self-satisfied and never long for the city whose foundations, who's built by God that he is preparing for us. So we come to the table uh, today. Hear these words of institution. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The gifts of God for the people of God. Let's confess our sins uh, together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you are faithful in all your ways. Not one word of all your promises has failed. You are exceedingly jealous for your church. But we have not longed for you. We have cherished secret sins and sought comfort in the lesser country. We have doubted and disdained your sovereign choice and squandered our inheritance. We have grown suspicious of you and wondered if you were ashamed to be called our God. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. And forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Believer, hear the good news. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the scriptures tell us on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name. One of the ways uh, that you know your home is you get fed. Um, I was thinking about this this week that um, when I went away to college, uh, those four years I was at college, uh, and I would come home, I don't remember a single time in those four years where my parents said to me, we miss you. Because they wouldn't say that. That was not their way, right? But the way I knew I was missed was because uh, my mom, most days, all my life growing up, where I grew up, she baked some kind of bread. She did. How she did it, I don't know, but she did. And one of the things that I grew as a child and as an older person to have a preference for was she would make biscuits or, or yeast rolls and uh, she would pull them out of the oven, dump them into a basket on the table, and then 
uh, my dad would pray. And, and, you know, my dad was quite the prayer. And he would pray. And he would pray. And he would pray. <laughs> and, and by the time I got the roll off the, out of the basket, it was cold. And I don't like the butter pad sitting in the roll unmelted. Right? My mom knew that about me. And so the first day I came home after being away from school, she came up to me. She dumped the rolls out in the, uh, at the dinner table there in the basket. But she handed me two that she had buttered while they were hot. And she handed them to me and she said, I knew, I knew you'd like this. And then dad prayed. Right? We read that our home will be a place where we experience the marriage feast of the Lamb. We read where our home will be a place where our Savior meets us, takes our face in his hands, and wipes every tear from our eyes. And all of us, the best and the worst among us, will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your rest, your home. That promise that we live in light of puts this life, this place, in perspective for us, doesn't it? Jesus sets a table for us. We are told that he goes to repair a place for us because that's our home. That's our hope. That's our faith. If you've come to that place in your spiritual life where you have no other hope, no other home really, even though you may get confused about that from time to time, but the home that he is preparing for you, then this Jesus says to you, sojourner, exile, take, be renewed. This meal is intended to tide you over until you get home by reminding you of the atoning work that Jesus has done for you and that Jesus died so that you would have a place at his table in his home forever. If that's your hope, that's your, your faith, you, you proclaim that to a body of believers somewhere. Jesus wants you to come today. He wants you to be renewed. He wants you to be restored. He wants you to be reminded today of his goodness and his love and your eternal home. Uh, as the uh, elders and deacons come down front this morning to assist me, let me remind you that the outer ring is wine, uh, the inner rings are grape juice, and all the bread is uh, gluten-free.